This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. During the turbulent civil rights era of the 1950s and 60s, beyond the lunch counter sit-ins, the freedom rides, and church bombings, black Americans went about their day-to-day lives with a fearful but quiet determination, moving into newly integrated schools, neighborhoods, and workplaces. In her book, When We Were Colored, Eva Rutland tells a true story from her vantage point of wife and mother who lived through these times. Rutland is the author of more than 20 novels and the winner of the 2000 Golden Pen Award for Lifetime Achievement. With us today is Eva Rutland and her daughter, Ginger. Eva Rutland, Ginger, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thank you very much. How how are you both doing today? You're up in Sacramento. Is the the weather fine up there? Very warm and lovely. Oh, good. I'm, I'm glad it's lovely up there. It's very nice here today, too. There's a little bit of breeze going on. Now... You wrote this book back in 1964 with the title, The Trouble with Being a Mama. I, I just want to know, was, was your daughter uh, any part of the trouble? <laughs> <laughs> no, my children were delightful. Oh, I good. was very lucky. But there was so much going on in this world. You know, there are a lot of crazy people out there. Uh-huh. And, and, and I, you know, you're not trained to be a mama. You grow up thinking you're going to work or something. <laughs> Uh-huh. And you get all these children, and you don't know what to do with them. Well, there's there's a beautiful photograph on the cover of the book, and I noticed Ginger sitting on her her father's lap. Is was there was there a point in time where you just felt like you had to write everything down, or was this something that was uh, a building inside of you, or or was there uh, a time when uh, Ginger might have come up to you and said, "Mom, write a book." <laughs> oh, oh, oh. There were bad times, and there were good times. Uh huh. But they were good times, yeah. more than bad. I'm not quite un- sure what you said. Uh, she, what, Mom wrote all of her life. She uh, wrote as a child. She would write stories for her cousins. Uh, but when she got, um, when she started having children, it was, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a uh, transitional period for the country. She had grown up in the segregated South before the Second World War. Yes, right. She was raising her children in the you know, nominally integrated West after the Second World War. And we were the first children to go to these integrated schools. And, and Mom um, really wanted to tell white mothers a story. She wanted to tell them that her children were just as fragile and just as precious as their children. Mm-hmm. And she wrote, Mom, you tell them. You wrote first a bunch of articles, right? Yeah, first I wrote a, an article. I wrote one to the Ladies Home Journal and one to oh, Red, Red Book. Book. Oh, <laughs> really? Another one somewhere. Yeah, were, these, were these articles, what, what were they like? What, were, what was the subject of your early writing? Well, one of them was uh, Dr. Hayes. I think that was the title. Mm-hmm. And another one was... Uh, Elsie and God. Elsie and God. And the 
Otherwise, the morning, the springs were empty. But if there were simple stories about children and motherhood, and she tried to inject some, it was it, her target audience were white mothers, and right. she wanted them to know that she was just like they were, and yeah. her children were just like they. You were you were writing about the common experience of motherhood and, and raising children, and and the and what you have to deal with every day. Is that right? Well, well, you know. A black mother had a few more experience yeah. problems than a white yeah. mother did. Mm-hmm. There were people who thought black children were different, and uh, they were not. They mm-hmm. had to go to school, too, and I wanted them to have friends. Mm-hmm. and be. I wanted them to be happy, and it was a difficult time. Especially in a new end. I was uh, in a new situation altogether. When I went to school, I lived in an integrated neighborhood, even in Georgia. Mm. But when I went to school, I went with the black children. And I always had friends. And, you know, it made a lot of difference. What was... I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to ask, what's what was the uh, reaction to your articles that you were writing? What Did you get... Feedback from a readership, or did you, from from people you knew, what was the reaction? What was the reaction to, to my... To the articles, articles, the initial articles that you were writing. You know, I don't know. <laughs> I just, the people I knew seemed to like them, and mm. I was called on to speak at several different schools, and, you know, with different people, but... I don't know what the reaction well, well, was. But it was remarkable. It was remarkable that this young black woman, and these articles, mind you, were published in 1952. Right. 1952, for a black woman to get articles in the leading women's magazines of that era yeah. was really rather remarkable. Yeah. yeah. And so that's, and that, and that was the, the, um, centerpiece of the book that mom later wrote that became the trouble with being a mama yeah. which is now which is now when we were colored we other story now i want to i'm going to you said you went and spoke eva you spoke to groups uh, after you had written these things was were you encouraged by the reaction that you were getting in in sort of the interplay between yourself and the audience did you feel did you feel did you feel encouraged oh and, yes i found the audience very responsible mm-hmm. very happy and they're I, I was here in Sacramento, mm-hmm. and uh, usually my audience was white people, mm-hmm. and they were very uh, interested, very warm and friendly and understanding. Mm-hmm. I, I had a wonderful reception. I have to be happy, yeah. happy about that. At least they understood what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. Now, what's, what's the difference in your childhood Eva, and your childhood, Ginger, was there is it a huge difference, or did you see this more as like a transitional thing with, with integration? And you've also, you're also making a move there from Atlanta to Sacramento, too. Could you talk a little bit about that? There was a big difference between my mother's childhood and my childhood. Uh-huh. I grew up in an integrated environment in which generally I was the one or uh, there would be one or two other black children in a classroom. And my mother grew up in segregated Atlanta in which 
she went to school with black children from you know kindergarten all the way through college yeah. and 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 that, that that was a difference because integration doesn't mean desegregation i guess doesn't mean integration and she was really worried about the social aspects of school there's more to school than reading writing and arithmetic there is you know the interplay will your kids be invited to a party will your kids uh be part of you know the in crowd at school or the out crowd will they you know will they be happy will their teachers treat them uh like they have potential yeah. or will they treat them differently because they're black and they have different expectations for black kids so those were the differences i think yeah. now you said Eva, you said you lived in an integrated neighborhood in in atlanta but you went to a segregated i was just thinking about that yeah that taught me a lot yeah my, I lived in a house that my grandfather built mm-hmm. six years after he was a slave wow. and six years after the Civil War. Mm. And he had this big, it happened to be, I don't know why, but it was built in a place where the well-to-do Jews lived around that place. Mm-hmm. And uh, then in the time that I grew up, was kind of during the Depression, and the prosperous people had moved out, and uh, many poor white people were taking places in those houses, taking, you know, there'd be three and four families in one room. So there were a lot of poor white people around me, and very few black people in my neighborhood. There were some that lived in the alleys behind us, and there were about, I think, three couples three houses that were close in my block almost. Mm. And um, in that, because we had the biggest yard and because my mother was friendly with everybody, our our yard was a big playground Mm -hmm. of black, white, Jews, and Gentiles. Mm -hmm. And I... It was a good place for me because I learned that they were no different from me. Everybody was just the same, no matter what color or what religion. But most of my time, I would have to walk several blocks to my private school in a black neighborhood. And that was where I wanted to live, where the black people lived. But I was very lucky, I think, now that I think about it. Because I grew up in a neighborhood where there were many, many different kinds of people. And I learned that there's no difference between the people. They're all wonderful. I don't care what color they are. We're speaking with Eva Rutland. She's the author of When We Were Colored. And uh, with her is her daughter, Ginger. I was wondering, too, uh, given that you've had all this experience and written so much on the subject... What's your best advice on how to raise children free of bigotry and hate? You've, you've just said you lived in quite an integrated neighborhood. Is is that the first thing? Have a big backyard, maybe? <laughs> well, I wish I knew. Maybe Ginger can read a portion of the book that I I did about. Was hey, it? Mom, he's, that'd be nice. He's, she's, you're 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 right. What's what is the key? To, to having a truly non-bigoted childhood. I think the key for me was having parents 
who were not bigots. <laughs> I, yeah. mean, I mean, not being a bigot yourself, yeah. I think, is yeah. is really the key. And and I'm I'm fortunate to have had a mother and a father who were not, you know, were not bigots, and they welcomed everybody in our home, and they were just very much like mom's parents in that mom's in her neighborhood had they had the biggest backyard in Atlanta hmm. and all the kids came there and it didn't matter what they were what color they were we had a house very much like that in Sacramento everyone was welcome and it helps i think first to in your own heart be not bigoted and then i think you can raise children who 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 pattern themselves after you i do want to say there's another message in mom's book and it's really about black men was- she she was concerned about and and we all are concerned about the image of black men is horrific in this uh, in it, it, back then when she was growing up and even now and yet it was so at variance with the experience of the black men she knew her grandfather her father who was a pharmacist her grandfather was a um, was a shoemaker her 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 uncles everyone worked hard raised their children. Uh, supported their children. Her, my father. We we republished this book because my father uh, died, and I read mm. a portion of this book at his funeral. Mm. And so many people wanted the book after I read that portion that we decided as a family to republish it. And if you, if I may, I'd like to just read one section about my father. By all means. His name was Bill Rutland, and he was he worked for the United States Air Force all his life, starting with a Tuskegee Airman in Tuskegee, Alabama during the Second World War. And he lived at a time when there was discrimination, legally tolerated discrimination, and he had to overcome it. He had to swallow his pride at times. And I just want to read one thing that my mother wrote. This is in the 1950s, and it's about Dad going all over the country doing the work of the Air Force. I remember the time in a borderline town when he and a white buddy entered a cafeteria and Bill was turned away. I remember that my husband was calm and dignified, that it was the buddy who raved, a man who saw discrimination personally for the first time in his life and became, as Bill said, another converted white man. I remember the conference in Kentucky that Bill conducted with a leading airplane production company, the elaborate luncheon the company had arranged for in advance. Fifteen men seated at the dining table, all received menus except Bill. Bill, absorbed in conversation, hardly noticed. Then, as the others began to order, he asked the waitress quietly for a menu. Then came the always shocking, no matter how many times you hear it, I'm sorry, I can't serve you. But this time from the company representative comes, what's the matter, Bill? His indignation, the hurried consultation with the manager who babbles about policy precedent. This time, 15 men arise and walk out. 15 men representing a powerful company that sustains that town. And as they watch them go, the waitress and the manager are a little disconcerted as people always are when discrimination affects their bread and butter. You get the feeling it won't happen again, and you are a little thrilled that the capable Negro man who has helped to open another door is your husband. And if you are that man's wife, you begin to understand why he roars, what he is saying to your children. It is, 
I love you. I want you to be happy, to be respected. The age-old cry of the Negro father, the slave that bowed and toiled and did the white man's bidding, that his little brown babies might eat, the newly freed black man who waited tables and carried bags, that his child might be educated a little further up the ladder, the teachers and preachers who planted a dignity, an idea to stand up, black boy, be proud, and walk straight, straight into the doors of the universities of Mississippi and Georgia, to the front of the bus, to anywhere you want to go. I know at last what my husband is roaring about. The doors are open. Be ready. And I am proud and happy and thrilled that he is helping to open them. And I relax and smile and listen to him roar and sort out socks and polish the floor and put a log on the fire, a pie in the oven, and wait and thrill to the key in the lock, the quick masculine step, and the inevitable heartwarming first roar, where's your mama? Mm -hmm. At any rate, that was my father, and she's talking about him roaring at his children about do well in school and don't and 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 be prepared. Those are wonderful words, Eva, and that was a very fine reading, Ginger. My goodness, we're we're talking to uh, Eva Rutland and her daughter Ginger. Ginger, the book is When We Were Colored. Do you think people today have any idea of w way it was like uh, sixty, seventy years ago? Think, do you think Mom, this generation do you think does? People have any idea what it was like fifty or sixty years ago? Oh, people today. Yeah. No, everybody is dealing with their own personal life yeah. right now, and the world is in a bit of a world. And I don't think that they quite understood what it was about then. But there are still problems. There are still. It bothers me that even in. Uh, the government, we have uh, the black people that are, have their own little, everybody has their own little group that they meet with. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be plans. We, we are supposed to, we are integrated, but we are not very well integrated. Mm -hmm. I guess it takes a little time. No, I want to, I don't want to, this is sort of covering the same ground, but I, I want to, well, what is so fascinating about your story, Eva, is that you were with your your father and in his experience as a as a as a slave. Mm -hmm. Her grandfather. I'm sorry, grandfather. I'm sorry. Pardon me, grandfather. And just the sort of the 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 breadth of this sort of experience, this American experience that you and your family have have gone through. Going. I don't know. Uh, my grandfather was a very lucky man. I haven't quite understood why but he six years after the civil war yeah. he built his only shoe shop he had a shop in downtown atlanta he was very prosperous he had 11 children mm -hmm. two of them died yeah. he said everyone all the rest of them will finish college they and this is mind you this is the first generation born out of slavery yeah, yeah. and so they her parents went to college. That's incredible. That's yeah, incredible. in the 18, we're talking 1870s, 80s, 90s. Uh, my grandmother's um, degree, which we have a copy of, graduated from Atlanta University in 1903. My grandfather got his pharmacy degree in 1906. Now, now this, I'm just to put some historic um, sort of frame around that. This happened 
primarily due to Reconstruction, or did it happen primarily due to Reconstruction uh, after the Civil War? Was that, was that a product of that? And then the education? Seemed, the education, yeah. the educational uh, opportunity. And it's, then it's not Reconstruction. You know what it is? It's miscegenation. Yeah. Our grand, my, my mother's grandfather was his. His father was his owner. Okay. And and those there were a lot of mulatto children, some of whom were discarded, but some of whom whose fathers uh, uh, protected them mm-hmm. and helped them. And I think that although we're not totally um, sort of. Um, aware of or have all the knowledge that you know one would normally have about your ancestors but the 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 family lore is that his father set him up in business and so he had the wherewithal to send his children to college Uh, i guess now in my house there were many books uh and i always wondered who was it that that bought them because they had been there. Mm-hmm. I lived in the house that my grandfather built, mm-hmm. and I think he was must have been a well-educated man himself. Mm-hmm. And I also think, you know, we went to the Congregational Church, the first Congregational Church in Atlanta, which was founded by, I'm sure it was founded by white people who came down and uh, established the church for black people. And uh, what I want to say, I guess, is that after, even after slavery, there were a lot of white people who were concerned about blacks mm-hmm. and helped us get into a new world. Well, I, again, going sort of going back over what you you said earlier, but I, I just want to sort of reinforce this whole notion, which is your family's experience going from slavery and and into a college education, college educated, and beyond, and moving into sort of the middle class, and here we are today. Uh, Eva, are you have you seen? Did you, ex- you have an expectation at any point that you would see an end to uh, sort of institutional bigotry in the United States? And if you did, do you see it happen? Has it happened, or, or how far do you think we have to go before we'll see an end to this sort of institutionalized bigotry? You mean, how do we get to where we have no bigotry at all? Yeah. What do, where, I mean, in your life experience, having seen so much, are, how much progress have we really made in your mind in terms of? Oh, I think we've made a lot of progress in terms of uh, people and the, what color or what creed they have. Mm-hmm. We are more interested now in how much money do they have. Yeah, yeah. And I think that uh, I go back to Shakespeare. Getting and spending, we lay waste our lives. We are very concerned about the people who are prosperous. Mm-hmm. And... Um, or I don't know. I'm, I'm the thing that I'm really afraid of in this country that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. Mm-hmm. So there's always going to be something. You may not be color, but and I do think this is a this is uh, there's a, been a big change in my lifetime. I couldn't believe it. Don't tell anybody. You know I'm 90 years old. <laughs> 
But well, congratulations. Anyway, oh, well, I just couldn't believe that things were going to change as much as they have in my lifetime. Yeah. And there are so many, what we call now, mixed marriages, and mm-hmm. we are getting so mixed up in this world mm-hmm. that I don't, I do think that it's not going to be the bigotry so much about class. It's going to be about class and what your interests are and how much money you have. Well, we definitely need to work on that. And uh, I want to thank you very much for being here, Eva. Um, The book is When We Were Colored. Uh, It is a remarkable book. I'm just looking for the publisher. IWP is the publisher and uh, also, Ginger, thank you so much for being here with us today on Weekly Signals. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you very much for having us. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan, and I'm Mike Caspar, and this is Weekly Signals.